And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hutt. I am the editor-in-chief here at Sci-Fi For Me. Welcome, everyone. We are broadcasting live to Odyssey, YouTube, and Facebook from the bunker deep underground beneath world headquarters. And... Uh, we're glad you're all here. We are live, so the live chat is active. Comments are active. If you want to send us email, you can do that. Live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. And if you're in replay, you can still leave us a comment. Or if you prefer to listen to us as a podcast, we're on a number of different uh, podcast platforms, so you can find us there as well. And we do invite you to sign up for our newsletter, which uh, I send out on a semi-sporadic semi-regular-ish basis to let you know what's going on. So uh, there is that. So what's going on today is a chat with a guest who has been here before and is back today. Cat Rambo joins us to talk about the new book. It is called You Sexy Thing. And it is, uh, just from reading the description... It's, it sounds like it's an interesting premise. I haven't had a chance to get very far into the book, but you're, you're looking at the setup is a retired group of soldiers who's basically kind of underground running a restaurant so they don't get pulled back into the war. Is that, is that a, a, fair, uh, a fair characterization of the setup for this? That is totally it. They have been in the ranks of the holy hive mind and the way that they have escaped being assimilated is by pretending that uh, they are artists and that restauranting is a kind of expression of that artistry. <laughs> now, it, it's, it's interesting that you have a, a restaurant set up as art because a lot of people, you know, the, the culinary side of things, people don't necessarily think of that as an art form except... You know these these real fancy bake offs and cakes and the and the big decorative things and whatnot. So how how did you arrive at that being their escape hatch? Well, I will admit I have watched a huge amount of food related television, <laughs> but I also I I love to go to good restaurants. Uh, I was a mystery shopper for upscale restaurants for a number of years, so I got a chance to see some really cool ones. And I love to cook. And I do think uh, cooking is an art form, uh, not just in the sense of the taste, but also kind of the coordination of, of the meal and the experience. And uh, I love restaurants in how they kind of create a mood for the meal. And yeah. so why not write about that? Well, and there've been a few, sorry, when, when I was reading this, you know, the, the old soldier retired and is pulled back in. My first, my first thought went to uh, stories like Firefox, for example, with Clint Eastwood, where he's, he's retired, he's done. He's like, I don't want to have anything to do with it any anymore. And they pull me back in, you know, it's one of right. those things. So the 
the the holy hive mind you said assimilated this this is one of those things where if they get pulled back in their brains are scooped out and put into this machine they become cogs in the wheel as uh, cogs in the machine as it were that's that's what their leader is facing uh her mind has been determined to be one of the minds that can go into the holy hive mind after she dies and so she's like, I, I don't know that I really want to do that, particularly since they're going to speed up the she dies part right. in order to assimilate. How did how do you how do you decide? Because you were talking about this being the beginning of a series. How do you decide when a story is a self-contained single story versus? well, I think this thing could go on for three or four or five or 10 or 20 books and maybe the next 50 years of my life I could be writing this thing, you know. Um, be like be like uh, George R. R. Martin and keep promising that last book okay. and at <laughs> least, you know, everything else comes afterwards, right? Well, and if he were delivering a book a year, <laughs> which I intend to, yeah. uh, that would be okay. Yeah, um... I'm a big fan of long-running series. Uh, C.J. Cherries uh, has a number of them that I just adore, and every time she releases a new one, I'll go back and read all the way through and come up to the new one. Um, the reason that I wanted it to be a series is in the course of writing this first book, I realized I absolutely loved these characters, and I loved writing about them, and so I started thinking, uh, what do I love about long running series and how can I kind of start constructing a path that'll lead to a 10 book series? And so I planted a few seeds, I hope, in this one, uh, but it's still delivered a book that is satisfying on its own. Nobody mm -hmm. should be like, write all 10 books and then I'll <laughs> buy them because I we don't get to 10 books that way well that's what we do um, with netflix series yeah. now you know we get to binge watch and we just we're we're so conditioned now to want just tell oh, yeah. just give me all of it right well and i think that's another thing uh that certain writers that have not delivered on their series uh have kind of screwed other writers because that is a, i think a valid question you know like why should i get engaged with the series why should i start loving it if it's going to get to the point where you know like we're about to get to something real good and you're just sort of like hey i'm gonna go off and join a baseball team for 10 years or something <laughs> right so yeah well and you know I, you know we we make the joke about martin but there are other authors who Lots. for whatever reason uh you know sometimes they get tied up on other projects and things just take off in, in different directions they have yeah life-altering events you know some of them die before they're able to finish yeah. some of them some of them get tied up in other in other things so when when you're faced with it have you ever in all of the things that you've done because you've been writing for for a while now have you ever so, so far have you ever had to abandon a project and just say i can't finish this one right now it's going to go to the back burner because i have obligations over here and then you never get back to that other one? Have you had that happen to you yet? Oh, well, I have had stuff that I put aside, but I know I'm going to get back to it. <laughs> um, I mean, I have had stuff that I've, I've been like, okay, I'm going to jettison this draft and work on something else. I mean, I, I think a lot of writers have that. I know 
uh, in fact, the Tibet books started as a totally different book that I sort of banged my head against for a year. And then at some point, thank God, my spouse said, do you think that's the book you want to write? And I was like, oh, you know, actually, it's not. Um, but I, I, I think, I, I mean, this is, this is a rough question. I, I, I do think as a writer, I would try to deliver on the series that I've, I've promised to people, partially because I want to tell the story. Right. Uh, I am a writer who partially writes to discover. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of the plot until I sit down and start going. And I love that part. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to write these uh, no matter what, because I want to know what happens. Now, with this one in particular, you've got this is the beginning of a 10 book series. How far out do you usually plan for something like this? I mean, you know, it's going to be 10, 10 books. Well, you ho you hope there's going to be 10 books. And you have, like you're saying, planting seeds in this. So what I have is at uh, one point after I'd finished the book, I sat down and noodled around and constructed an outline that is basically two parts. One is, you know, here's the 10 books and here's like two lines about each book that says this is the focus of that. And the other part of that is I have a long-running romance uh relation and because I, I and i want to get to book 10 and have readers just like oh god what's gonna happen <laughs> right you know oh, oh, oh. will they uh, won't they that's it yeah uh and and so i've also plotted that out kind of against the background of those books uh so that's what i have and you've but i just turned in the second book so i'm i'm a fifth of the way there. Well, and you've got uh, an intriguing group of people here because in your in your main cast of characters, you have aliens and you have werewolves and and there's talk in here about uh, creatures who leave pieces of their spirit behind floating around in the rest. I mean, there's there's a lot of different intriguing types of characters. How did you go about populating and deciding what kind of not necessarily what kind of characters, because that does speak to personalities, but what kind of creatures and species, and where where did you figure out that mix? Well, I wanted a kind of farscapey feel, because that <laughs> is one of my favorite series. And yeah. I, I just, I love that kind of, that cast where it's, I love Firefly too, but it's an all-human cast. Sure. And I think one of the things about Farscape that makes it really interesting is the aliens and kind of learning to communicate with each other and learning to kind of get along with each other. And, and I, I think that speaks to kind of human communication in a really interesting way. Right. Um, as to how I created them, they sort of came to me as I was writing them. And so the book started with Nico and Dabry arguing about an eggplant and so that was the first scene that I wrote. And I was like, okay, she's sitting there. And who is she sitting across the table from? And I was like, oh, it's this really interesting purple skinned four armed guy. And he's got his arms folded and he's like, yes, Captain. <laughs> and I, I just, I love the dynamic. I love the banter between them. I, I uh, see so that. I, I see that description of Dabry and I'm thinking this sounds either like the, the two, the two things that popped into my head was Lieutenant Eric's from the animated Star Trek. Uh, oh, yeah. Because he has three arms, and then mm -hmm. the the Martians, the Green Martians from John Carter from the from the Barsoom novels, because they have, of course, you know, they've got the four limbs, and 
but I'm seeing him not green. Um, sort of a sort of the same color as as Doug Jones' Saru character over on Discovery. You know, so it's it's that mix of of different things that come into my head. Yeah. I don't know how how accurate he looks in terms of of that, but it's it's one of those you know you you look at it and go oh okay he's got four arms that's that's different and then you know your your werewolf characters your were lions i guess is your is a better description in any of that cuz i was talking with arthur swan yesterday about his book he's got coming out and he he made the point that a lot of his stories are very character driven, very focused on what the characters are. And we and we got to a, to a point in the conversation talking about if you plan things out, are there ever times where the characters end up in a place where you have to go back and completely refigure everything that came before? It's like, okay, wait a minute. I've got this character now in this spot. He's not going to do what I want him to do because yeah. I've set him up to be a completely different type of character. Have you had to abandon particular threads or go back and retroactively change a whole piece? Yeah, I I can totally think of times where I'm like, oh, this is what is important to that character or this is what's, mo-, you know, particularly when it's a motivation thing. Yeah, That's something you have to go back over the whole thread involving that character in order to make sure that works and i could think you know like sometimes my agent asked me to make a major change to the book which i'm not going to describe in fully because it's a big spoiler but that required a big bunch of rewriting scenes in order to accommodate the thing that he had asked me to do now we talked the last time about making making accommodations for the various different people whether it's editors or readers or whatnot um and you've got uh another tibet book that's coming out besides this one uh you know you sexy things the beginning of a new series you've got the tibet book that's coming out probably sometime in early 2022 i think I yeah, I don't know. I'm going to say early. Yes. Probably mid-2022 is what I would commit to. I'm in the middle of uh, starting the outline for that, which I've, I've got kind of rough ideas for that. But I'll spend a couple of weeks uh, kind of figuring out the outline and figuring out a list of scenes that I want to write. And then what I'm going to do is the same way that I wrote You Sexy Thing, which is I'm just going to go head down avoid the internet uh, sedulously <laughs> and uh, try to bang out three to 5,000 words a day until it's done. Uh, Cause that's worked before. Speaking of the internet and, and responding to uh, feedback and critiques and whatnot, uh, when you're in the midst of a series, I mean, you haven't, you haven't had this experience yet with this, this new one, but for something like Tabat series, you get to a point have you changed anything made? Have you made any major drastic changes because of the feedback that you get from readers? Yes. And I can, I can tell you actually, this is not what you really want the feedback you want, (laughs) but I was down at my local bookstore and uh, the used bookstore and they're very kind. They're very good about carrying my books and I love them. You know, shout out to uh, Pegasus bookstore in West Seattle. 
But uh, the person who was talking to me said, you know, I really loved your book, even though nothing really happened in it. And I was kind of like, (laughs) okay. And so like the next book, I was like, I am going to make sure like nobody can say nothing happens in this book. (laughs) And so there's, you know, like all sorts of stuff that happens. Yeah, Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, you listen to feedback and and, uh, sometimes you don't agree with it, but you think about it and the the marketing of it we've talked about how how that falls on your shoulders a lot how has that Mm. gone so far because you're just now getting into uh talking about you sexy thing and in various different interviews and and whatnot has that been relatively easy manageable especially now with you know the pandemic and lockdown and all of these Uh, things you know book tours are are not really a thing. You know, conventions are starting to open up, so I don't know if you're making appearances at any, any at any of those yet. But how how has that changed the plan as far as getting the word out about this book? It's changed it a lot, yeah. um, and it's continuing to change it. Uh, I was supposed to have a live event at uh, the University Bookstore here in Seattle uh, the day of the release. And I just got word that uh, they're not going to do live events. Uh, And so we'll do a virtual event, which is fine. But, you know, like I've got to then bop over and sign books at some point. Uh, And I'm supposed to appear actually at Emerald City Comic Con, Hmm. which is in early December here in Seattle. And so honestly, I'm a little curious to see what what happens with that, right? Whether it's going to go forward or not. I hope that it does because uh, I would love to see people. Uh, but you know, if I go, I am vaccinated and I will be masked and washing my hands <laughs> every <laughs> once in a while. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it, it certainly means far fewer live events, and it's also meant that supply chain problems have yeah. affected the book. Uh, it was originally supposed to come out in 2020, and then that got bumped to September of 2021, and then that got bumped to November, and I was told I, I was lucky that it only got bumped a couple months instead of an entire season, and I really wanted it to come out this year because, you know, you want your books to come out. Sure. When they're saying supply chain, is it uh, paper, paper supply? Paper. Or, yeah. It's okay. paper stuff. At least that's my understanding. Right. Uh, well, and and as we've gone through here the last couple of years covering, you know, the various different uh, changes in Comic-Con schedules and, you know, we're going to go oh, virtual yeah. instead of live and all of that. And it's it was something we're starting to notice that a few, not all, but a few of them are sitting there, th- you know, we get what we call our school closings list, which is basically here are all of the ones that are changed or canceled or rescheduled or whatnot. Uh-huh. And now uh-huh. we're tra- we've been tracking recently uh, mask and vaccination policies. And uh-huh. it's really interesting to see the difference oh, in yeah. how each convention is is handling all of this. Because some of them are, you have to be vaccinated. Some of them, you can either be vaccinated or give us a negative test. Some of them are starting to recognize that people have had it and recovered from it and they've got the antibodies and all that. So it's interesting to see that shift in how organizers are looking at these events and adapting. And and we've gotten to a point where it's like, okay, we're not we're not even going to look 
further past two weeks out because mm-hmm. some of these mm-hmm. some of these events are waiting till the very last minute to say what their what their COVID policy is going to be. Right. So right. it makes it makes it difficult, I would imagine, for anybody to make any kind of a plan for oh. visiting any of these places as a vendor or an artist. Or, you know, you've got your table or you don't. Or what what kind what kind of decision can you make when nobody nobody at the event has has made a decision on what they're going to do? Yeah. No, it's it's truly, sh- and I do think a huge amount falls on the vendors. I you know I'm friends with some of the the vendors and. They make a lot of their money off booth sales and frankly, uh, online sales with virtual cons and stuff just don't kind of, it doesn't say sell the same sort of merchandise that people being able to pick something up and read the back and, you know, you, you chit chat with people, right? If you're good at, at, at least I'm good at book selling. So I'm like, hi, how's it going? Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, how do you plan for it? I, I do think one of the good things that's happened is that a lot of the conventions and conferences have learned that they can have a virtual presence for panels. Right. And in terms of accessibility for people who can't travel because of time constraints or financial constraints, or I got to take care of my kids constraints, right? All of that. That's a huge boon. And I really hope we don't forget that. Uh, I'm really worried that the live conventions are going to forget all of that. And I really would love for all of them to go forward and be kind of hybrid, right? Where you've got the live and you've got some virtual stuff and anyone across the world has a chance to participate no matter what. Well, and we're starting to see some of that too, where, you know, especially in the last year, because in 2020, Everybody, you know, the whole the whole world got shut down and everybody's like, OK, what do we do? How do we figure this out? And through 2021, we've seen a number of those go to the hybrid model. I mean, a lot of them went online virtual to start with. And then as the as the world starts to open back up, people start looking at, OK, we made the online part work. And now we need to figure out how to integrate and incorporate that into yeah what we do uh, what we do in person yeah. and so we're starting yeah. to see a number of those like you say the hybrid model where there's an in-person element and an online element and yeah. uh, I don't know that I don't know that a lot of the bigger groups like read pop or 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 creation have fully embraced that yet yeah um I don't it's really weird seeing San Diego's comic-con at home not perform very well, you know, yeah. because you're looking yeah. at the at the YouTube numbers and and how many people actually watch any of those panels. And this is San Diego Comic Con. This is yeah. supposed to be yeah. the big granddaddy of all of them, and it does drive home the point that a lot of these conventions have depended pretty greatly on the Hollywood side of things. Yep. You know, the yep. actors and the the you know the producers and the writers, whatever, you know, where they're promoting. The movies and the TV shows, and you know, you authors are just kind of a also ran back over here in the corner. <laughs> and sad, yeah. Well, and I think people are starting to realize that these conventions do better. The ones, the ones that actually get more traffic and get more attention, are the ones that are a little bit smaller. Yeah, and they can yeah. they can focus down and narrow yes. in on. 
you know, here are these authors, here are these comic book creators, here are these, you know, these people who are writing the stories rather than here's all the Hollywood crowd that, you know, you pay 50 bucks a pop for an autograph. Oh, 50 bucks is cheap, right? Yeah. They're, they're like charging a hundred bucks for right. some of these. It's just crazy for 90 seconds of standing next to the, I, I actually did this for John Barrowman, <laughs> who's like one of the few people I would have done this. I got like, a brief chance to squeeze John mm. Barrowman's middle. And then they're like, okay, you're done Rambo. And <laughs> well, and, and the other part of that is people are figuring out that, that that doesn't translate well to an online thing because nope. you can't stand next to people and nope. get that photograph taken or whatnot. I mean, you could do the Q and A's and you know, they get people together for the panels and whatnot, but it's just not the same. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I don't know the logistics of, of Reed Pop's, you know, economics, but I would think that they're making a lot off those photos, right? I, I mean, that so. does seem to be kind of well, and they're, they're you know, for somebody said to me at one point, when you go to a science fiction convention, there's a convention and there's the dealer's room, and when you go to a comic con, it is the dealer's room. Yeah, and I think there is a certain amount of truth to that. I think so. And I, I think the the model, like you say, as it as it shifts, as as people adapt, uh, the organizer, I, and I've said from the beginning, I always thought that the smaller conventions would would adapt better, faster because mm -hmm. they're smaller, because they don't have so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it can translate to an online type of thing where the 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 Q&A's and the and the panels can yeah. be both. Um, but then you get into speakers fees and attendance fees and all of those things. And those get affected by, okay, well now this is going to live online. That's mm -hmm. a different beast than just coming up on stage and standing in front of four or 500 people. Now anybody in the world can see it. So the fees get, get changed. And so you, you have these, the, the smaller conventions are not having to worry so much about that because right. they don't have the actors that command the high fees to right. start with. Right. And they get expensive, right? Because they're getting flown in. Uh, they're getting hotel accommodations and usually not just ho hotel accommodations for them, but probably for a handler or two right. and meals and all of that. So, I, you know, I, I would think in some ways Reed Pop might lean into this just in terms of saving money. Uh, but again, the photos aren't there generating uh, income. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things, you know. And and we've talked to to people at Readbot. We've reached out and we've said, hey, you know, we could help, you know, because some of these some of these channels, you know, like ours, like others, you know, we've fully invested into the online video space, whether it's YouTube or oh, Odyssey yeah. or Rumble or Twitch or wherever, and we've kind of figured out a model so you know it's one of those things like you know why reinvent the wheel let some of these people who already have uh, a youtube presence and i think san diego has done a little bit of this i haven't seen it very much with anybody else but you have yeah. you know certain youtube personalities or certain youtube channels get get brought in to help facilitate some of that stuff i think having yeah. that kind of cooperative effort would benefit both. It'll it'll benefit the the convention because you've got people who already know what they're doing doing that kind of thing, and it benefits the channels too because hey, I'm interested in San Diego. I'm interested in New York Comic Con. I'm going to go to this channel and see their stuff. Absolutely. So yeah, 
your experience mirrors mine in a kind of similar thing, which is when I was CIFLA president, I kept trying to reach out to Reed Pop to say, look, you want writers to come in. I, you know, I can tell you where there are the local people, right? I can hook you. We will happily provide you all sorts of panel descriptions because God knows we're all going to cons. We come up with 20 million panel descriptions and we can come up with interesting stuff Yeah, and just, you know, like crickets chirping. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. I hear you. I, I've gotten a few of those myself. Like, um, it's, I sent you an email. Yeah. Hello. Well, and I, I think as you pointed out, it's really particularly frustrating when it is something that would be a mutual, you know, you're, you're offering them something that would be of value to them. Yeah. You know, you're not just being like, Hey, do this for me. You're saying, Hey, here's something I can do for you. And they're just like, yeah, no, <laughs> I don't know. what they're doing. All right. Speaking of doing for others, you have a writer's workshop that you teach some of this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a real quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about cat Rambo's workshop where you can learn to write the Cat Rambo way. We'll be right back after <laughs> this. Don't go anywhere. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. Experience makes the difference. Since 2009, Sci-Fi For Me has been bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Science fiction, fantasy, and horror have been on our radar from the beginning. And now, Sci-Fi For Me is bringing you something new. A new direction, new partnerships, new content, an all-new mix of programs on an all-new channel. Sci-Fi For Me TV, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Hi everyone, it's McKenna Talley from Salacious Crumbs. Just a quick reminder for all the latest Star Wars news and rumor, be sure to check out our show Salacious Crumbs right here on Sci-Fi For Me TV, Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 Central. I almost didn't hit a button right. <laughs> Back live from the bunker. We are here talking with author Kat Rambo, who, besides being a writer, is also an editor, is also uh, somebody who has workshops on learning how to write. So how did you get started in that? Was the, was the editing and the, and the workshop stuff just kind of as a natural extension of what you do normally? Well... Uh, a while back, a friend of mine, uh, Louise Marley, was teaching a night workshop at uh, the local community college and said, uh, it's a six-week workshop. They meet once a week. Do you want to take this over? Because I can't teach it anymore. And I was like, sure, that, that sounds good. And I had a lot of teaching experience from uh, grad school. And so I started teaching that and taught it for a few years. And then at one point, I was looking at my paycheck and I happened to have gotten their catalog in the mail. And I was like, I'm curious, how much are the students paying for this? And I went and I looked and I was like, wow, there's a big discrepancy between what I'm getting paid and what the students are paying. That's interesting. <laughs> and at the same time, I had a lot of people who were saying, hey, uh, I really would love to take a class with you, but I'm not in your area. Uh, how do I do that? And Google Hangouts had just come out. I mean, like literally, and, and I was like, okay, I'm going to try teaching a class, this workshop over Google Hangouts. 
And it was a huge success. And Google Hangouts, I learned over the years, many intricacies and uh, the abrupt weirdness sometimes of Google Hangouts. <laughs> now I do it via Zoom. Um, or at some point I started, uh, I asked Ann Leckie, I said, will you come do a class on writing space opera? And she did one. And then I started asking uh, other people, like Seanan McGuire has come uh, a few times to teach. I keep asking her, but she's busy. Oh, sure. Um, I have uh, Scott Andrews, uh, who uh, Benicius Skies is teaching a class on short story openings uh, next month. And so I've got like a, a wide range of people uh, teaching really interesting stuff because what I do is... I find a workshop that I want to take and then I go approach the person and say, do you want to come teach it? And that way I get to sit in on it free. <laughs> and uh, usually, usually I try and find stuff that people can't find elsewhere. Uh, sure. Like I have Xander Odell. I just uh, talked to them about doing a repeat of, they've done a really interesting workshop about writing neurodiversity uh, that I really liked. And so uh, they're going to come do it again. Uh, and Scott, Scott has done the short story openings class before. And it's an amazing class. Uh, now, have so. you thought about crossing over into other types of stories? You say you've got a workshop on writing short fiction and, and novels and such. Uh, what about, let's say, writing comic books, for example, or doing the TV, uh, writing for television? Because they're, so, they're completely different beasts, but the elements of storytelling kind of cross over you know, from time to time you know, yeah. with a lot of these. You know, a lot of the comic book people have been criticized for just writing their comics as the Netflix pitch. You know, instead of, you know, just write the comic book, you know, don't make it yeah. a Netflix story. Just, just write the comic book and hope it sells. But yeah, have you have you talked about doing workshops in in those mediums? I have like I've got a number of people that have done game writing classes and some uh, television writing classes. I would love to find uh, somebody good to teach uh, the comic writing class. I keep trying to pitch uh, Saladin Ahmed, uh, who's a friend of mine on it, uh, but he's super busy. Uh, I talked to Shauna McGuire about doing it and she hasn't uh, been able to do it. And so, yeah, I keep looking for somebody interesting to teach that class because I would love to see something on writing graphic novels. I think that would be a really useful uh, class for people. I wonder if there might be some value too because there are a lot of, you know, we've, we're starting to see a shift with a lot of comic book writers going independent and using, yeah. you know, Indiegogo and Kickstarter and they're oh, starting yeah. their own their own books. But that model and we've talked about the fact that authors have so much on their shoulders with regard to the marketing of a book. But with something like that with your in indie indie publishing, not just comic books, but I'm gonna put a novel together and I'm gonna crowdfund it or whatnot. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. a there's a business aspect of it that is coming into play at at that time with you know managing you know how uh, how the money comes in how the money's spent you know your distribution and your your fulfillment and all of that other stuff oh, yeah. have there been workshops starting that, whether whether in your group or if you know any that are looking at that aspect of publishing especially you know it, you're it's all on you you're self publishing yeah. you're the you're yeah. the boss. 
Yeah, I've had I've had a number of those. Uh, Catherine Lundoff, who runs Queen of uh, Swords Press, does a book promotion on a budget class that has is really good. And I've had uh, MCA Hogarth has taught a class on crowdfunding. I am doing a class for Clarion West on Patreon and kind of similar crowdfunding uh, platforms in December. And I'm probably going to turn that into a workshop for my academy as well. Um, yeah, I have, I, I think, I think self-publishing is one of the places where people go into it not realizing how much they have to do in terms of marketing and book covers and all of that. Um, so I am I am actually talking to another one of my friends uh, who I think would be amazing because they they write it actually it's uh, yeah I'm not going to say who it is because they might turn me down. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to bring in somebody who, who manages very well uh, independent publishing uh, just to the point where they could quit their job, uh, which is what we're all shooting for right yeah and and we're starting to see uh you know people talk in, in in the indie comic scene how it's not sustainable and you can't do it but you know we're starting to see you know moving over to Substack. you know a lot of people are, are going that route there's mm -hmm. a lot of repeat business and o'brien polito uh Ethan van skyver they've they've done a number of books you know billy tucci is on like four or five that he's done so far oh yeah and no, that's it, yeah. it it feels it feels like there's not maybe maybe a paradigm shift here where where the big publishers the big publishing houses are not necessarily going to be the first go-to answer for how to get your book out well i think absolutely and i think uh, one of the things about the big publishers is that they are going to be less receptive to experimental stuff they're going to be less uh, interested in niche stuff. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're the thing that they're driven by is the bottom line and they want something that they can sell to as many people as possible. And, you know, that comes with, with certain things built into right. it. Right. Right. And I do, I love, for example, Kickstarter, like my, my spouse recently was like, how much do you think you put into Kickstarter <laughs> each month? And I was like, oh, I don't know. But I love to support uh, people that are doing crowdfunded stuff uh, That is because there's so much good stuff coming out, coming out in comics, uh, coming out in games, particularly if you love role-playing games. There's just amazing stuff coming out there. Yeah. Uh, there's anthologies. I see, you know, I don't think that the traditional publishers like doing anthologies. They don't see them as big money makers. I know it's, for me, it's always a hard sell uh, to a publisher. Um, well, so I see some great anthologies coming out of there. Yeah. Bob Greenberger is doing what his, their second or third uh, anthology of pulp style uh, stories. They're, they're crowdfunding on Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. It seems yeah. like though too, that if you've got something like you say, it's a niche, but if you have relatively low costs of production, let's say, because you mm -hmm. have you have your the people that are involved in the process, whether it's editors or artists or writers or whoever, and then you have your printing company who's got to make the thing. You have to pay you have to pay your postage for shipping and whatnot. Past that, whatever else monies there are, 
you can put into other projects. You can yeah. do bonuses and that kind of thing. So it doesn't seem to me, especially looking at the comics, they don't have to have a lot of backers to make their goal of how much money they want to make on this thing. So the the publishers are sitting there saying, no, we need to sell 12 million copies of this in order to break even. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like they're missing the big picture because well, Dynamite Comics, for example, does a little bit of this where they do crowdfunding for variant covers. You know, here's this, you know, brand new, red, well, they're doing one with Red Sonia right now with uh, with oh. Yael Simone. And, and there's a new cover, sort of a classic, you know, classic traditional cover. You, you, pin, you know, pay $25, you get this special edition of this thing. Yeah. And it seems like the 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 big publishing houses, DC, Marvel, uh, you know, Random House, Doubleday, whoever, may not quite understand the dynamic of a crowdfunded model where you have people who are very specifically interested in this thing and they're buying it ahead of time. They're essentially pre-ordering the book. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm I, I don't know that I don't know that they've wrapped their heads around that quite so much yet. <laughs> I don't think they have, and I think that traditional publishing and here I'm going I'm going to piss off all the traditional <laughs> publishers, <laughs> including mine. But I, I think traditional publishing has, in response to some of the challenges presented by, say the Kindle platform and self-publishing and just the fact that, you know, we can put stuff up on YouTube without having to buy expensive equipment, all of that. It, it, in some ways uh, they have doubled down and, and just said, yeah, eBooks, I'm, I'm sure they're just a thing. They'll go away. <laughs> just a fact. Thing. Yeah. You know, so. Well, yeah. and, and the, sh the shipping I think is the biggest hurdle especially for mm -hmm. anything if you're sending it over to you know anywhere outside the united states the shipping oh, cost on that is just is yeah. ridiculous yeah. um there is a company there's a there's a small publisher uh critical blast publishing they're based out of st louis uh that has started working with com indie comics publishers and creators outside the u.s oh nice to basically say ship them all to us and Critical Blast Logistics will handle the shipping to all of the all of the United States. So basically, oh, it's cutting lovely. down your mm -hmm. overall shipping costs. Now, we're I know there's a couple of a couple of people that are trying to figure out the reverse of that yeah. in terms of getting getting stuff from the United States out to other places. Uh, but that's that can get really expensive. So the the electronic copies then become one of those things was like, well, sure, you could download a PDF, you could download a Kindle edition or whatever, and pay ten bucks instead of thirty-five dollars for the graphic novel, or yeah. or you know, twelve bucks for the hardback or the you know the trade paperback or whatever. Is is there a time? Do you see sometime in the future where the where the traditional publishers are going to maybe understand what it is they're missing out here? Oh, I think I think. Some of them are. Uh, I don't know that I think all of them are. I think that the smart ones will because they'll realize that, you know, anytime there's money to be made at some point, somebody will be like, oh, there's money to be made doing that and, and they'll do it, right? Yeah. 
Well, and you get published by a number of different imprints. I mean, the you know, mm-hmm. the, you sexy things coming out through Tor. Your your mm-hmm. uh, Tibet books are in Wordfire. Yeah. How do you decide which publisher gets which story? Because especially your first one in a series and and whatnot, it is that you know you're going well, through a list and rotating. You know, whoever's up next, is, it's your turn or what? The funny thing about that is I wrote You Sexy Thing to self-publish. I was like, I see other people making a substantial amount of money self-publishing. I think I can write a, a fun sort of military space military <laughs> fantasy series. And so I wrote it fast and I wrote it just to have fun. And then uh, I said, well, I guess I'd better get my agent's permission before I do this. And I sent it off to him. And and I'll be honest, you know, like when you get an agent, that's that's not the kind of rung that you think it is, because then they have to sell a book. Right. And that hadn't happened yet. Um, and he was like, yeah, how about you let me try to sell this? And I was like, dude, you know, <laughs> what I'm committing to is letting you shop it around for a year. And then you come back and go, well, I can sell it. And I mean, I, I, I apologize to him now, right, for my lack of faith, because he did take it and he sold it at a substantial uh, three book, you know, deal, which was amazing. Uh, and the book, you know, we did the whole thing where the book went to auction and that was super exciting and you know, all those high school dreams where you're, you know, <laughs> that sort of stuff right. uh, got, got to come true. So um, that's why that ended up with Tor. But like the Wordfire book, that was one of the books that uh, had not sold, which I was at a convention in Colorado and talking to a friend who was a Wordfire acquisitions editor. And I was like, hey, I have a book that I think is ready to go do you want to take a look at it? And so I, I sold that book. Now, do, do you have, uh, is, is there a sense of obligation when you're writing in a series and they should all be published by the same imprint or how, how important is that in, in the overall scheme of, of getting the books out? I, I think that's fairly important. Like if somebody, like another party came and said, hey, we want the last Tibet book, I would have real hesitations about not giving it to Wordfire because among other things, Wordfire and Kevin J. Anderson have been very kind to me and I I really appreciate them. So I I think they should get that book. Um, Like if, well, I don't know, would would I bail on tour if they failed to match someone else's efforts? Well, probably because I am, I need to pay the rent and stuff. So how, how (laughs) much, how much does it matter as an author, as somebody who's been in, in the, the mechanics of the writers associations and, you know, the, the various different organizations and groups, how much does it matter the online behavior of the publishers in determining, well, you know, I don't know that I really want my book published by these guys right now because they're doing X. And I know we talked a little bit last time when you were here about yeah. the whole idea about cancel culture and all of that. Right. But on and the I- on the flip side of that, if you have somebody like, uh, you know, uh, well, any any of them that are the publishers... 
because there was the big to do about Bayon's forum, you know, a few a few weeks ago or a, well, a few months ago now. A few months ago now, yeah. But does that ever factor into deciding who gets the book for you? I, I actually came up in a class I was teaching recently, and I, I it really kind of firmed up uh, my answer to it, which is, if it is a market where I would be embarrassed, uh, then I will pull it. Uh, but if it's a market where I would not feel embarrassed uh, to appear in it, uh, you know, is are, are they doing something where I'm like, eh, I really feel kind of shitty about supporting that, then, then yeah, I, I might. No. But, you know, the other thing of that is, is that we tend to reduce a lot of these things to there is one side and the other side. And I think we talked about this last time. Yeah. I, I still maintain there's a bunch of different sides. And the people who are pushing kind of one side versus the other side, I, I really question that divisive agenda because i think it's got its own uh, drive behind it sure have you had conversations with fellow authors have you called anybody out and said hey you're not part of the solution right now you're making it worse and and, and, and i'm not asking you to yeah. name names but yeah no. have, have those conversations happen where you look at well, it and it's like yeah you shouldn't be doing that I, I think like maybe once or twice, but what I do is the same thing I did with a relative who had published something and it was a meme on Facebook. It was a couple of years back. And uh, I messaged them and I said, you know, I, I'm just letting you know that comes off is, is really anti-Muslim to me. And I don't know that that's the message you want to present. And if you do, that's fine. I'm just letting you know that's how it comes off to me. Yeah. And we had that kind of opened up a conversation. And, you know, the outcome of that was they took down the meme. So maybe that's cancel culture. I don't know. But we both had a better understanding, I think, of each other at the end of it. And so if there was an author that I felt comfortable doing that to and and I just I don't know that I would feel super comfortable in, in trying to correct somebody. Right. But I certainly might feel comfortable if I didn't think they knew what they were doing. And I might in that case, I would approach it in the same spirit. Like, hey, you're doing this. You may not have factored in this. Right. Well, um, and I think having that conversation one on one in private is a whole lot different than inviting oh, yeah. inviting the dog pile. You know, it's like, hey, this one Those over here, go, go get them. Those public conversations are not about convincing the person. Those public, com you know, those are about making an example of them. Yeah. And maybe that's what you want, what somebody wants to do. But I, I think they're absolutely different conversations. Yeah. And I don't like the dog piles. I, I think, you know, and I think there is that real kind of, bullying uh thing that goes on where it's like oh everybody else is saying things to this person i get to say things to him too and yeah. and eh, do that in private you don't need to do it in public has, has anybody called you out for anything have you have you re-examined something that you well, might I have had, posted and say well, you know I, maybe i ought to take that down i had well i don't know about anything i i said but i had like a story bundle a number of years ago that i had uh, 
put together. And I was super bummed because two books got yanked at the last minute because the publisher was like, hey, we changed our mind. And so the bundle did not have uh, two authors of color that I really wanted to have in there and still had a, a, another, but I had somebody mail me and was like, how, you know, you publish this bundle and it's just nothing but white authors. And I'm really angry with you. And I'm never going to, I, I you know, all this sort of stuff. And I, I wrote back and said, gee, I'm, I'm sorry. You feel that way. You know, but what was I going to say other no. than, Hey, the publisher pulled a couple of books and, should I have yanked the bundle? I mean, like, I, I don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, you do get feedback sometimes and you think about it and you think about whether or not it's justified. And if you need to, you know, change your behavior going for, forward in order to avoid committing that faux pas or mistake i, I or, have to wonder how many how many people that are out there and not necessarily public figures you know people, you know politicians or fam famous celebrities or whatever mm -hmm. but just in general anybody who starts posting stuff like that and they and they do for the dog pile or they're going to review yeah. bomb or they do anything like that i have to wonder if they think it through to the the natural progression of the consequences oh, no. it's like okay no. well i'm going to do this i'm going to reap now or, or i'm going to i'm going to sow the seeds now not thinking about what i'm going to have to reap later and yeah. they don't think it all the way through as far as what the consequences of that action will be no they don't and they don't they don't think about the fact that there is another human being on on the other side of things and then you also get uh you know kind of the the weird internet effluvia that kind of bubbles up and wants to kind of be take advantage of the trollish uh, aspects of the situation. Right. And they're just kind of mean. Uh, so yeah, it's, I, this, this is one of the reasons why part of my process was avoiding the internet uh, when writing uh, during the day, because the internet just distracts you. Oh, and yes. you get this this kind of weird, like somebody's wrong on the internet. I must correct it, and and that's that's. I'm sorry, that's that's pointless, right? Yeah. It, it's well, it's... and and the other part of that too is you know at, at some point, and and we've seen this happen with a couple of different people who have who have participated in the dog pile, and then the dog pile comes for them for some other reason, and they become the victim of the circumstance that they just contributed to someplace else. And that, that sense of comeuppance, you know, but it's still, you know, now you get yours type of thing. It's still, there's still that attitude of, of aha, see, you know, and, and so you have to deal with that as well. Well, just to kind of play devil's advocate here too, I will also say that, uh, sometimes the internet stuff is just not worth bothering about. Yeah. And th this was one of the things uh, that when I was working with SIFWA was I said, you know, like when a Twitter storm arises, we don't need to respond immediately. We think about things before we say anything. And, and we remember that sometimes these storms die out by themselves, but there's no, need to comment on every you know thing that's happening on the world 
Right. I have made the observation, and I've said this a couple of times, Twitter especially, but some other social media channels, feels like uh, it's, it's, it's populated mainly by emotionally stunted junior high kids. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, that, it's that neener, neener, neener attitude that comes especially from Twitter, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that so many of them have migrated from Tumblr. Mm. And, you know, now you've got the TikTok crowd out there and you've got the Snapchat group and everything happens in these short little bites and nobody thinks about nuance. Nobody thinks about in-depth conversations yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, we we had a we had a situation a few a few months ago. We we interviewed uh, Ernie Gygax about the return of TSR. Oh, yeah, Dance. all of that stuff. And it was our interview that blew up the Internet. And it was that thing where he says he says this one thing and it's taken out of context out of everything else that he says in the hour. And here comes the dog pile. And, and we didn't really even realize what was going on until a couple of days later. And it was like, yeah. this thing is all over the place. And it's on yeah. websites yeah. I've never even heard of talking about oh, games yeah. and everything. And I got contacted from some uh, some blog podcast that said, hey, we're going to be talking about this thing. Can we use clips from your interview? I was like, well, why don't I come on and put some context to it? They're like, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And I think I think context is one of those key elements, one of those key ingredients that people have a tendency to ignore because it doesn't fit whatever narrative they're trying to push. Well, you get I mean, like long form journalism. Right. Where you really kind of dig into a story and, and, and go for sources and have kind of like reasonably thought out stuff is just dying away because, yeah, it's not something you can consume on your phone while you're standing in line at the grocery store. <laughs> and I mean, they, they I, people's attention spans are getting shorter. And what does that bode for our world? I I don't know. And I think it's really interesting to watch all the stuff going on with Facebook right now where Facebook is finally kind of having to, to go, yeah, maybe we kind of realized that we were influencing <laughs> people and, uh, oh, look, you know. And, you know, it's no coincidence that some of me, they're like, you know, oh, let's talk about this multiverse thing that we're uh, doing over here, right? And it's something like the jazz ants are going on pretty hard right now with Facebook. Do, do you think there's anything to this notion? Some people are, are, are of the opinion that the the Facebook situation is maybe not necessarily a red herring, but a, an attempt to increase the amount of censorship that happens on Facebook. Do you think there's anything to that argument? I don't. Well, I don't know. Let me think about that. I, I don't. I think, you know, because I do, I was just kind of like factoring in, because you do see a lot of this new stuff where companies are like, you know, pay attention to this rather than this. And right. I, I don't think it is simply, you know, this Facebook's so clueless, right, in some <laughs> ways, right? That, like recently, what was the thing where they went down and they had to like summon somebody with blow torches to come right. through into right. the server of my house or, you know, it's <laughs> And it was one of those things where Facebook was down. Everybody was singing hosannas to the highest. And it's like, oh, get, we got rid oh, of it. Yeah. It's gone. And then it was it's back. Gone. And oh, it's oh, back. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think people don't realize sometimes like how much uh, people in other countries rely on social 
media for communication. Yeah. And I think that was one of the interesting things that, that came out of this. I was li- listening to a lot of stories. I know when I was visiting China a few years ago, that was like everybody talked on, uh, I forget the name of the, the Chinese app. It's installed on my phone now, so I should know. Um, but everybody uses that, right? Everybody uses right. that for everything. All the stuff that we use 20 million apps for, right? We've, we've got an app for the summoning the Uber and another for you know ordering food, and they're just doing it all through a single one. Well, and I think... And, you know, you're right. You you look at situations like what happened in Afghanistan or what's going on in mm-hmm. Iran and, and Hong Kong and all of that, where, you know, social media is really the only way to get out any information of what's actually happening because there's such a blanket yeah. uh, 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 a dampener put on the official news outlets yeah. that it has yeah. to be guerrilla journalism almost in, yeah. in those cases. Yeah. All right, well, speaking of short form and long form, the book, You Sexy Thing, it's coming out November, November when? Do you have a date? Uh, a November solid? 16th. November 16th. All right, and Cat Rambo does have a presence on YouTube as well. Uh, the main website, kittywumpus.net, and uh, you can find Cat on Twitter and Instagram, do you, which one do you use more than any others? Is there is there a preferred I use, platform? I use, sadly, Twitter, and then regret it because <laughs> it's Twitter. But yeah, I use Twitter more than any others. No. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Uh, don't forget to check out that book. And uh, when the next one comes out, we will we will definitely have you back. Cat Rambo, thanks for being here today. Awesome. And thanks all of you for being here as well. I see Sci-Fi Snob. I see Rambo Nona in the chat. It's good to see you all oh. here. And uh, we do invite you to subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. Have your notifications turned on. Don't forget our new day and time for Salacious Crumbs. McKenna is back as host. And we are accommodating her schedule. So now the show is on Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 Central. You get all your Star Wars news and rumors there. And, uh, of course, we have Good Morning Multiverse on Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 Central. Coming up next weekend, October 30th, not this not this coming weekend, but the next weekend, we've got a new season of Foreign Bodies starting. So there's lots of videos, lots of shows that are here uh, for you to enjoy. Check them out. If you are brand new, we do uh, ask you to subscribe. Just consider it. Just think about it. We don't bite. And that's going to do for us today. Thanks very much for watching. We will be back with more. Remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.